Bonjour and Boonvenue to Spook Royale, where we pause judgment on spooky things. Which uh, <laughs> one will be the spookiest? <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. Je m'appelle Boon Clark. <laughs> oh my god, no. And I'm Eliza Summers. <laughs> and <laughs> that was awful. We might have to do that again at the end, but <laughs> No, we should keep it. It's so we should bad. Keep I love it. It. Um and we are joined by a very special guest. We are joined by our lovely librarian friend and a familiar face to many in the history podcast community, the venerable Elspeth Olsen. <laughs> Make me sound ancient. <laughs> Does venerable make you yes, sound old? I, I think it will make you sound high up. Very important. Yes, I am a librarian and archivist um, cool. with a deep love for history podcasts and for history of all things, and uh, also fairy tales, which is why I'm here today. Wasn't a librarian a dream job when like, you were little? You're like, oh, I want to be a librarian. <laughs> no, I always assumed I'd end up teaching. And then I had a massive existential crisis in university when a, my advisor used the phrase professional academic. Uh, then Ooh. I went and got to the um, college version of a, a buying a sports car, which was to get a drastic haircut. And let me tell you, if you're freaking out about everything changing, don't get a drastic haircut. <laughs> um, but it's turned out that I am a professional academic um, and I now do some instructions. So it's all come full circle. Mm. Yeah, when when I was given the choice of uh, professional academic or or something crazy, I chose to start a podcast. So <laughs> so that's how my life. Is so going. you chose both, basically. Kind of. I, I I definitely wouldn't call what I do academia. It's it's not rigorous in the slightest. Yeah. Um, it's me mostly scrambling to figure out what is what is going on with these kings at, at all times. Um, and then there's and, me wishing that I had a something a job to do with history instead of just being a teacher. <laughs> no, well, I mean, Eliza, you're um, you're 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 valuable often in in how much you don't know <laughs> and how many tangents I can go on. Yeah, so this episode is a Halloween episode, obviously based on that really st- stupid intro, um, <laughs> and we decided it would be fun. Uh, based on a, a, a poll that I put up on, of like, what do you guys want us to do? That we would focus on fairy tales for this episode. In particular, the more spooky and dark and <laughs> delicious ones. Yeah. And um, Elspeth was on the History of Suckat Velo Georgia podcast. I can't remember. Was that a Patreon one or was that like a regular one? I can't remember. I think it was Patreon, yeah. yeah. But I listened to that and I was like, oh, well, we should have her on because she has a lot of in-depth knowledge of, of this topic, seemingly. Uh, so <laughs> Misspent youth trying to get the history department to recognize this kind of thing as history. It exactly, is. yeah. Folk, folklore uh, is... Well, uh, yeah, it's like Japanese. There's always like a connection to some a historical like event or something that's happening with a lot of its like, folk tales. Mm. Yes. Also, they reflect social values of the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's the, the way these stories have evolved, a lot of them haven't changed a whole lot in how we tell them, but how mm. we understand them is very different. Mm. Yeah. Or like even seeing what's like continued the same like social like trends and stuff or like, you know, focusing on things opposed to how it's changed as well. 
Mm. It's interesting if there's like that circle as well. Yeah. So how how is this going to work? We're going we're gonna to do a, a bit of a grim reading um, for anyone who <laughs> loves the grim reading podcast, as I do. Are we going to have the crackling fire background sounds? Oh, I don't know if we can do that. I don't know if we can get oh away with Oh my God, we should get spooky that. forest sounds. Spooky forest Like spooky, like, like dark forest. Like werewolves the in the background. Like... Or at least the occasional owl. Yeah. Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll see I what I can do. I saw some owls the other week <laughs> at a bird aviary I went to. I'll see what I can rustle up um, in the huh. editing room. You get that? The <laughs> rustling, like leaves rustling? Yeah. I love that. I'll see what bodies I can dig up. I don't know, something spooky. Oh, I love and... <laughs> But yeah, the way this is going to work, um, I'm going to tell a fairy tale, uh, then Elspeth's going to tell a fairy tale, and they're both going to be sort of French-European-y um, ones. And we're going across the water. And then we're going to Eliza, who's going to tell... A Japanese one, apparently, um, yeah. to reflect Maybe the heritage of the place that she is coming. Well, I actually don't know what fairy tales either of you are doing because I haven't asked. Mine's more um, <laughs> we haven't chosen the same ones. <laughs> well, Elspeth, if we've chosen the same one, which like is there, there's if a non-zero. Somehow you chose the same one as me, which isn't even in Europe. <laughs> I will be like, what? I do have a backup. I have my favorite apocryphal historical anecdote to tell. Okay, well, we could always do both. Um, I'm, I'm sure it won't, won't take too long. But yeah, the, the story that I'm going to be doing today is called Bluebeard. I did not choose that. Okay, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if you had, I'd be like, oh, we can discuss it. We can read it together. <laughs> but yeah, Bluebeard, or uh, Barbe Bleu, is a tale by Charles Perrault, who is the father of of fairy tales, um, arguably. French fairy tales. Um, French fairy tales. Um, Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, I I guess he existed before the Brothers Grimm and many of the Brothers Grimm's fairy tales are actually ripped straight out of uh, stuff he did, including the one that- Some of the Italians will want to have a word with you if you say that he invented fairy tale collections. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. And I think a lot of uh, women who existed at the same time as him would also want to have words because it was- uh, um, mm-hmm. A very popular thing for for women at the court to tell each other fairy tales, and um, there were many around during Peppo's time. He just happens to be the most famous. And mm-hmm. this story is probably, I would say, one of the most famous fairy tales in France that's kind of not famous anywhere else. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually talking to a French friend of mine earlier today. And um, I said, oh, well, we're going to be talking about French fairy tales. And she's, she's like, are you going to be talking about Barbe <laughs> That was the first thing she asked. Because it's <laughs> just one of those ones that I guess French children know, but um, other children don't know. So I'm going to tell it. I'm using the uh, a 1900 edition of Charles Perrault's Tales. It's on Gutenberg public domain which is lovely <laughs> and this was the most coherent translation that i could find some of them had a lot of these and nows and stuff in them but um yes i will just have a sip of my tea and then i will start <laughs> one must prepare the voice <laughs> yeah exactly mm.
Once upon a time, there was a man who had fine houses in town and country, gold and silver plate, embroidered furniture, and coaches gilt all over. But unfortunately, this man had a blue beard, which made him look so ugly and terrible that there was not a woman or girl who did not run away from him. Rude. One of his neighbors, a lady of rank, had two daughters who were perfectly beautiful. He proposed to marry one of them, leaving the mother to choose which of the two she would give him. Neither of the daughters, however, would have him, and they sent him from one to the other, each being unable to make up her mind to marry a man with a blue beard. Just get him to shave. (laughs) I think we'd cool that blue beard. A further reason which they had for disliking him was that he had already been married several times. And nobody knew what had become of his wives. That's a better reason than the beard. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think you're focusing on the wrong thing. <laughs> Bluebeard, in order to improve the acquaintance, took the girls with their mother, three or four of their most intimate friends, and some other young people who resided in the neighborhood to one of his country seats, where they spent an entire week. Nothing was thought of but excursions, hunting and fishing parties, balls, entertainments, suppers. Nobody went to bed. The whole night was passed in games and playing merry tricks on one another. In short, all went off so well that the youngest daughter began to think that the beard of the master of the house was not so blue as it used to be, and that he was a very worthy man. Immediately upon their return to town, the marriage took place. At the very end of the month, Bluebeard told his wife that he was obliged to take a journey, which would keep him away from home for six weeks at least, as he had business of great importance to attend to. He begged her to amuse herself as well as she could during his absence, to invite her best friends, and if she liked, take them into the country and wherever she was to have the best of everything for the table. Here, he said to her, are the keys of my two large storerooms. These are those of the chests in which the gold and silver plate, not in general use, is kept. These are the keys of the strong boxes in which I keep my money. These open caskets that contain my jewels. And this is the master key of all the rooms. As for this little key, it is of that closet at the end of the long gallery on the ground floor. Open everything and go everywhere except into that little closet which I forbid you to enter. And I forbid you so strictly that if you should venture to open the door, there is nothing that you may not have to dread for my anger. She promised to obey his orders to the letter. And after having embraced her, he got into his coach and set out on his journey. The friends and neighbours of the young bride did not wait for her invitation, so eager were they to see all the rich treasures in the house, and not having ventured to visit her while her husband was at home, so frightened were they of this blue beard. They were soon to be seen running through all the rooms and into the closets and wardrobes, each one more beautiful and splendid than the last. Then they went upstairs to the storerooms. There they could not sufficiently express their admiration at the number and beauty of the hangings, the beds, the sofas, the cabinets, the elegant little stands, the tables, the mirrors in which they could see themselves from head to foot, framed some with glass, some with silver, some with gilt metal, all of a costliness beyond what had ever been seen before. 
They never ceased enlarging upon and envying the good fortune of their friend, who meanwhile took no pleasure in the sight of all these treasures. So great was her longing to go and open the door of the closet in the ground floor. Her curiosity at last reached to such a pitch that without stopping to consider how rude it was to leave her guests, she ran down a little black staircase leading to the closet, and in such haste that she nearly tripped and broke her neck two or three times before she reached the bottom. At the door of the closet, she paused for a moment, calling to mind her husband's prohibition and reflecting that some trouble might fall upon her for her disobedience. But the temptation was so strong that she could not resist it. So she took the little key and with a trembling hand opened the door of the closet. (laughs) At first she could distinguish nothing for the windows were closed. In a few minutes, however, she began to see that the floor was covered with blood in which was reflected the bodies of several dead women hanging on the walls. I think with the window closed, you'd smell something. It's a fairy tale. (laughs) (laughs) These were all the wives of Bluebeard who had killed them one after the other. She was ready to die with fright, and the key which she had taken out of the lock fell from her hand. After recovering her senses a little, she picked up the key, locked the door again, and went up to her room to try and compose herself, but she found it impossible to quiet her agitation. She now perceived that the key of the closet was stained with the blood. She wiped it two or three times, but the blood would not come off. In vain, she washed it and even scrubbed it with sand and freestone. The stain was still there, for the key was an enchanted one, and there were no means of cleaning it completely. When the blood was washed off one side, it came back on the other. Bluebeard returned that very evening and said that he had received letters on the road telling him that the business on which he was going had been settled to his advantage. His wife did all she could to make him believe that she was delighted at his speedy return. The next morning he asked for his keys again. She gave them to him, but her hand trembled so that he had not much difficulty in guessing what had happened. How comes it, said he, that the key of the closet is not with the others. I must have left it, she replied, upstairs on my table. Fail not, said Bluebeard, to give it to me presently. After several excuses, she was obliged to go and fetch the key. Bluebeard, having examined it, said to his wife, Why is there blood on this key? I don't know, answered the poor wife, paler than death. You don't know, rejoined Bluebeard. I know well enough. You must needs go into the closet. Well, madam, you shall go in again and take your place among the ladies you saw there. She flung herself at her husband's feet, weeping and begging his pardon, and with all the signs of a true repentance and having having disobeyed him. Because, of course, you know, it's her fault. Uh, Her beauty and sorrow might have melted a rock, but Bluebeard had a heart harder than a rock. You must die, madam, said he, at once. If I must die, she replied, looking at him with streaming eyes, give me a little time to say my prayers. I give you half a quarter of an hour, answered Bluebeard. Not a minute more. Seven and a half minutes. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) she gets seven and a half minutes. (laughs) 
small. As soon as she found herself alone, she called her sister and said to her, I did not on the phone, I assume her sister's there because the guests are there. They have little cans attached by a string. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she called her sister. She got a little can on the string. She called her sister and said to her sister, Anne, for so she was named. She's the only one in the story who gets a name apart from Bluebeard. <laughs> Go up, I pray you, to the top of the tower and see if my brothers are not in sight. They promised they would come to visit me today. And if you see them, sign to them to make haste. The sister Anne mounted to the top of the tower, and the poor unhappy wife called to her from time to time, Anne, sister Anne, do you see anything coming? And sister Anne answered her, I see nothing but the dust turning gold in the sun and the grass growing green. Meanwhile, Bluebeard, with a large cutlass in his hand, he's a pirate now apparently, called out with all his might to his wife, Come down quickly, or I shall come up there. One moment, if you please, replied his wife, and then said quickly in a low voice, Anne, Sister Anne, do you see anything coming? And Sister Anne answered, I see nothing but the, the dust turning gold in the sun, and the grass growing green. Come down quickly, roared Bluebeard, or I shall come up there. I am coming, answered his wife. And the process repeats another time. <laughs> I will spare you. <laughs> I mean, she's going to die either way. Why is mm. she going to go down voluntarily? The wife, you know, calls Sister Anne again. Sister Anne this time says she only sees a flock of sheep, which is helpful. But the third, well, the fourth time <laughs> the, the wife calls up <laughs> and says, I see two horsemen coming this way, but they are still a great distance off. Heaven be praised, she exclaimed a moment afterwards. They are my brothers. I am making all signs I can to hasten them. <laughs> she's frantically waving at the top of the tower. I like to imagine that she has semaphore flags. Oh, she's doing she's doing a smoke signal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm just imagining the brothers being like, oh, she's welcoming us. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, God. <laughs> Bluebeard began to roar so loudly that the whole house shook again. The poor wife went down and threw herself at his feet with weeping eyes and disheveled hair. It is of no use, said Bluebeard. You must die. Then taking her by the hair with one hand and raising the cutlass with the other, he was about to cut off her head. The poor wife, turning towards him, her dying eyes, begged him to give her one short moment to collect herself. No, no, said he. Commend yourself to heaven. And lifting his arm, at this moment there was such a loud knocking at the gate that Bluebeard stopped short. It was opened, and two horsemen were immediately seen to enter, who, drawing their swords, ran straight at Bluebeard. He recognized them as the brothers of his wife, one a dragoon, the other a musketeer, and he therefore fled at once, hoping to escape. But they pursued him so closely that they overtook him before he could reach the steps to his door, and running their swords through his body, left him dead on the spot. The poor wife was almost as dead as her husband and had not strength to rise to embrace her brothers. It was found that Bluebeard had left no heirs, so his widow came into possession of all his property. She employed part of it in marrying her sister Anne to a man who had long loved her, another part in buying captain's commissions for her two brothers, and with the remainder she married herself to a very worthy man who made her forget the dreadful time she had passed with Bluebeard. I like to think she'd also buried the other women. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah Not yeah they, uh, this um they have weird priorities in this story i think and then we get a lovely uh lovely little um 
verse moral to the story at the end. Don't kill. Uh, nope, <laughs> that's not the moral at all. <laughs> so so let's so let's let's hear what Perrault says. Provided one has common sense and of the world knows the ways, this story bears the evidence of being one of bygone days. No husband now is so terrific, impossibilities expecting, though jealous he is still pacific, indifference to his wife affecting. And of his beard, whatever the hue, his spouse need fear no such disaster. Indeed, twould often puzzle you to say which of the twain is master. Ah, lovely little ending note of misogyny. Yeah, a bit of a cryptic thing. I like the rhyming. But the message should be like, don't marry someone who's had several wives who mysteriously vanished. Cough, Henry VIII, cough. Yeah, it's basically sort of like, hey, wives, stop complaining. Your husband's not as bad as Bluebeard. Uh, there's also a different moral in in another edition. Basically, the moral is curiosity killed the cat. And people always leave off the second half of that, which is, and satisfaction brought it back. Ah, I actually did not know that. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, the things that get left behind. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so that is the story of Bluebeard. It's it's a weird one. Um, mm, there's a serial killer. Yeah, it's got shades of true crime in there. <laughs> And I it's got, uh, speaking of true crime, um, there is actually a historical figure in France who is known as Bluebeard. His name is Gilles de Rey, and he was a companion of Joan of Arc, who actually became the Marshal of France. But later, after um, an investigation into his personal life, because he was a bit of a tyrannical feudal lord, he ended up confessing to murdering and potentially molesting over 600 children and disgusting he was he was hanged and he was Joan of Arc's friend yeah well Obviously she she well, didn't know that side of him well she died and then after that he sort of went off the deep end uh, but no um, excuses she may have been too old for him <laughs> exactly well apparently most of the victims were boys as well so mm. yeah bit dark there best known to uh, english English class students as uh, something you talk about when we talk about Jane Eyre. Bluebeard, I mean. Yes, because there is a Bluebeard reference in Jane Eyre. She she compares, um, what's his name? Rochester. Uh, yes. Oh, isn't it Heathcliff? No, that's Wuthering Heights. No. That's oh, that's Wuthering it. Heights, yeah. Yeah, she compares him to that's, Bluebeard. That's a different kind of emo. Very dark. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I haven't read Wuthering Heights. I haven't been able to. Um, I like Tenant of um, Wildfell. Is it? Yeah. Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Yeah. yeah. And Aggie Grays. Yeah, I only I've only read Jane, but yeah, it's a good one. So that's Bluebeard. Oh, also, there's like element. I guess there's elements of like Beauty and the Beast in there. Um, Don't trust somebody uh, with a blue beard. I wonder if he got the blue beard from like killing, or if he had the blue beard before he did the first murder. The tale really should have connected the blue beard to the murders. It would have made it. Yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, I didn't really understand it. And I, and I couldn't really figure out why. I think it's just meant to be like, he's like this hideous monster. Um, but I don't know why having a blue beard is, is the reason maybe for that. It was in, maybe since he'd enchanted Key, when he did his first murder, there was like a curse put him on him in terms of like an enchanted beard that was blue, hopefully to repulse people. So that way he wouldn't get more wives to kill. Interesting. 
So it's like a physical manifestation of his evil. Yeah. Hmm. Hopefully to use as like a deterrent. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. Early modern people were very into the idea that like ugly people, bad, pretty people, good. Uh, (laughs) Apparently there's an opera about Bluebeard. Hmm. Is there? By Bartok. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's in a category in my book called Bloodthirsty Husbands. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, dear. So um, I was going to say something else, and I forgot what it was. So uh, shall we move on to Elspeth's tale? Do you want the tale or do you want the anecdote? Let's do the tale first, and maybe we'll get to the yeah. anecdote after. Yeah, so the, the tale's a little bit longer than yours. <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to attempt the French, because while I have sung in French, I find pronouncing it extremely confusing. So we're all just mm. going to have to pretend and <laughs> deal with the, the English translation. Um, By the way, listener, Elspeth okay. is opening an actual book. Yes. And I'm also wearing a t-shirt from the Library of Congress. So, you know, I'm, I'm staying on brand here. Yes. What does it say? <laughs> Librarian, the original? Search engine. Search engine. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's from an con- American Library Association conference I went to uh, that was based in Washington, D.C. a couple years ago. And mm. We got tours of the Library of Congress, and I couldn't resist it. <laughs> I get of a lot of uh, approving looks from from senior citizens. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm imagining you as part of this like secret society of librarians. You are not the first um. person to suggest that. <laughs> there was actually, I think there was a TV show that came yes. out that that really bombed. That was called The Librarians yes. or something, based off of a series of cult classic movies. Yes, um, not quite like that, but more cardigans and sensible shoes. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, that's... And epic paper cuts. Oh, like that. mm. That's how you, that's how you <laughs> fly under the, the radar. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I keep telling the, the students, you know, li- library work is not as tame as people think it is. Like, the first day I worked in an archive, I was warned about the risk of bubonic plague and hantavirus. Oh, what? what? And <laughs> I know exactly when I'm due for my next tetanus shot. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, because of the handling of all the old materials. Is yeah, that... rusty staples really get you. Ah. Crazy. Yeah, and with the other ones, it's because people store stuff in attics and rodents get in. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm. Bubonic plague, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's still a thing, but luckily we have antibiotics now. Mm. Yeah. On the front lines. So, yes. <laughs> so I have a story from the same source as yours, our, our dear friend Charlie. It is called, in, his trans, in this translation, it is called Donkey Skin. Now, I grew up with a version of this, a heavily Baudelarized version of this, in a book that I had, I think more based off of the Brothers Grimm version. Uh-huh. Um, and the translation I had was called Furball. Hmm. This is a story that is closely related to Cinderella. I was listening to, actually, to Grimm reading, doing, I, I re-listened to their episode on the Grimm Brothers version of this uh, just today, out of curiosity. And they described it as C- Cinderella's dark twisted sister. Oh, yeah. Is, <laughs> is that is that Thousand Furs, that one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the, the Brothers Grimm version of Bluebeard is called... Um, Bluebeard. No, 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 it's According not. to this book. It's Fitch's Bird. Yeah, they've got three different versions that are here under that same category. Oh, right, okay. Well, the, if, you yeah. want, if you want to find the if you want to find the Grimm Reading Podcast uh, episode on, on yeah. Bluebeard, it's Fitch's Bird. Yeah. yeah. So the book I have here is called The, the Great Fairy Tale Tradition from Straparola and Basile to the Brothers Grimm. Love Basile. Um, and by great fairy tale tradition, they they definitely mean um, Western Europe. They really don't include anybody beside that. They don't even include the British ones. So <laughs> it's pretty pretty limited. Yeah. 
Um, All the Renaissance when when England was a backwater. Yes, and this was assigned in a, a, a self an independent study um, that I I had in college. Ooh. So I'm probably gonna fast forward through some of these bits because it is eight pages long and it's pretty small text. Yeah. Um, yeah. Feel free. the most powerful in the world. Gentle in peace, terrifying in war, he was incomparable in all ways. Throughout his realm, the fine arts and civility flourished under protection. His better half, his constant companion, was very charming and beautiful. She had such a sweet and good nature that he was less happy as king and more happy as her husband. Out of their tender and pure wedlock, filled with sweetness and pleasure, a daughter was born, and she had so many virtues that she consoled them for their incapacity to have more children. Everything was magnificent in their huge and rich palace. But what surprised everyone on entering the stables was the sight of a master donkey with two large ears in the place of honor. This strange and offensive picture may surprise you, but if you knew the superb virtues of this donkey, you would probably agree that there was no honor too great for him. Nature had formed him in such a way that he never emitted an odor. Isn't that lovely? Instead, he deposited heaps of beautiful gold coins of every kind that were gathered from the stable litter every morning at sunrise. So that's where the the kingdom gets their money from. Oh, nice. Quite literally in multiple (laughs) interpretations of that. I I gotta say, this this king is is getting 10 out of 10 in Lily Vu. Sounds like a great kingdom. (laughs) Now, heaven, which sometimes renders humans content and which always mixes the good with the bad, just like the rain may come in good weather... um, just sidebar here i live in the desert we love it when it rains so that's it's exciting um allowed a nasty illness to attack the queen all at once help was sought everywhere but neither the learned physicians nor the charlatans who appeared were able to arrest the spread of the fever that increased day by day when her last hour arrived the queen said to her husband before i die i want you to promise me one thing and that is if you should desire to remarry when i'm gone ah said the king. Your concern is superfluous. I'd never think of doing such a thing. Hmm. I believe you, replied the queen, if your ardent love is any proof. But to make me more certain, I want you to swear that you'll only give your pledge to another woman and marry her if she is more beautiful, more consummate, and wiser than I am. Her (laughs) confidence in her qualities and her cleverness were so great that she knew he would regard the promise as an oath and never get remarried. Hmm. She died in his arms and never did a king make such a commotion. Day and night, he could be heard sobbing, and people believed that he could not keep mourning like this for long. In truth, this was the case. At the end of several months, he wanted to move on with his life and choose a new queen. This was not an easy thing to do. He had to keep his word, and his new wife had to have more charms and grace than his wife who had been immortalized. Neither the court, with its great quantity of beautiful women, nor the country, the city, or foreign kingdoms where rounds were made, could provide the king with such a woman. Oh, sorry, I know what's going to (laughs) happen. His daughter was the only one more beautiful, and she even possessed certain attractive endearments that her deceased mother did not have. 
Oh, dang. This is where I should probably mention that there's a section in this book called Incestuous Fathers. <laughs> I suddenly got a flashback of a story in in the Decameron, which which had a similar yeah, similar which is a dirty dirty book introduction. But yeah. yes, <laughs> the king himself noticed this, and he fell so ardently in love with her that he became mad and convinced himself that this love was reason enough for him to marry her. Ew. Eliza's face. <laughs> <laughs> Greatly troubled by all this, yeah, no kidding, uh, the princess sought out her godmother, who lived at some distance from the castle, in a grotto of coral and pearls. She was a remarkable fairy. Upon seeing the princess, the fairy said, I know why you've come here. I know your heart is filled with sadness, but there is no need to worry, for I am with you. If you followed my advice, there is nothing that can harm you. It is true that your father wants to marry you, and if you were to listen to his foolish request, it would be a grave mistake. However, there's a way to refuse him without contradicting him. Isn't that just lovely? Women's socialization hasn't changed that much. <laughs> let, the, let the man down without <laughs> offending him yeah. so he won't kill you. <laughs> anyway. Even though you shouldn't have those thoughts in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell him that before you'd be willing to abandon your heart to him, he must satisfy some of your desires and give you a dress the color of the sky. In spite of all his power and wealth, and even though the stars may be in his favor, he'll never be able to fulfill your request. Mm. So the princess departed right away and went all trembling to her enamored father. The sun was just on the verge of shining the next day when they brought the desired dress, the most beautiful blue of the firmament, and there was not a color more like the sky, and here it was bordered by large clouds of gold. Mm. Then the godmother said to her in a low voice, Princess, ask for a dress more radiant and exceptional. Ask him for one the color of the moon. We see where this is going. Mm. Skipping forward again, she asks then again, he does, he manages to get it. She's like, she's like, if I'm going to marry my dad, I may as well get some swag out of it. Yeah. When she gets the, this the dress, the color of the moon, it says, admiring this marvelous dress, the princess was almost ready to give her consent to her father. Oh. <laughs> Child, come on. Uh, but urged on by her godmother, she said to the enamored king, I can't be content until I have addressed the color of the sun, even more radiant than this one. Since the king loved her with an ardor that could not be matched anywhere, he immediately summoned a rich jeweler and ordered him to make a superb garment of gold and diamonds, telling him that if he failed to satisfy the king, he would be tortured to death. Hmm. Yeah, his boulevard <laughs> score is rapidly dropping. <laughs> yeah. The princess was so confused by these gifts that she did not know what to say to her father. Right then, her godmother took her by the hand and whispered in her ear, There's no need to pursue this path anymore. There's a greater marvel than all the gifts you have received. I mean that donkey who constantly fills your father's purse with gold coins. Ask him for the skin of this rare animal. Since the donkey is the major source of his money, he won't give it to you unless I'm badly mistaken. Hmm. When the skin skin was brought to her, (laughs) she she was terribly frightened, and she began to complain bitterly about her fate. Her godmother arrived and explained that if one does one's best, there is no need to fear. Here's a large chest, the fairy continued. You can put your clothes, mirror, toilet articles, diamonds, and rubies in it. I'm going to give you my magic wand. Whenever you hold it in your hand, the chest will always follow your path beneath the ground. And whenever you want to open it, you merely have to touch the ground with my wand, and the chest will appear before your eyes. We'll use the donkey skin to make you unrecognizable. It's an admirable disguise, and so horrible, that once you conceal yourself inside, nobody will ever believe that it contains anyone as beautiful as you. Thus disguised, the princess departed from the abode of the wise fairy early in the morning as the dew began to drop. 
she makes her, her her skin ugly by dirt. She tries to find work. Um, she ends up working on a farm where they need a scullion. The, the translator here says, I forgot to mention in passing that there was a large aviary on this farm that belonged to a powerful and magnificent king. <laughs> the people there refer to her as donkey skin, and they, they are mean to her. She says, from a distance, the donkey skin watched and admired the, the king with a tender look. Thanks to her courage, she realized that she still had the heart of a princess beneath her dirt and rags. Mm -hmm. One day, the young prince went wandering about adventurously from courtyard to courtyard, and he passed through an obscure hallway where donkey skin had her humble room. He chanced to peek through the keyhole. Creeper. And since it was a <laughs> he holiday... He just happened. He just happened. He was just... Yeah. He, was just, he yeah. tripped and fell and yeah. his as, eye landed. As, as you do. <laughs> He's bending to tie his shoe and yeah. just looked. And then, uh -huh. oh, I can look for that hole. Yeah, there's a pretty girl in there. Oh, uh, he chanced to peek through the keyhole, and since it was a holiday, she had dressed herself up as richly and superbly as possible, and was wearing her dress of gold and large diamonds that shone as purely and brightly as the sun. Succumbing to his desire, the prince kept observing her, and as he watched, he could scarcely breathe because he was filled with such pleasure. <laughs> three times he was on the verge of entering her room because of the ardor that overwhelmed him, but three times he refrained out of respect for the divinity he thought he was beholding. Oh, he's being so respectful. <laughs> yeah, except for the part where he's a peeping Tom. Yeah, he's really respecting her boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> so he returned to the palace and became pensive. Day and night he sighed and refused to attend any of the balls, even though it was carnival. He began to hate hunting and attending the theatre. He lost his appetite and everything saddened his heart. At the bottom of his malady was a sad and deadly melancholy. He inquired about the remarkable nymph who lived in one of the lower courtyards at the end of the miserable alley where it remained dark even in broad daylight. It is donkey skin, he was told, but there's nothing nymph-like or beautiful about her. She's called donkey skin because of the skin that she wears on her back. Should be a real remedy for anyone in love. <laughs> All this was said in vain, for he did not believe it. However, his mother, the queen, who doted on her only child, begged and pleaded with him to tell her what was wrong. Yet she pressured him in vain. He moaned, wept, and sighed. He said nothing, except that he wanted donkey skin to make him a cake with her own hands. And so his mother could only repeat what her son desired. Oh, heavens, madam, they said to her, this donkey skin is a black drab, more ugly and dirty than the most wretched scullion. Doesn't matter, the queen said. We must fulfill his request, and this is the only thing that should concern us. His mother loved him so much that she would have served him anything on a golden platter. So donkey skin makes the cake, she washes her face and hands and, and all that, and she puts on a silver smock in honor of the task. It is said that in working a bit too hastily, a precious ring happened to fall from donkey skin's finger into the batter. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I bake, I take off any jewelry yeah. put on my hands. Yeah. Yes. Also, how is she hiding this jewelry like under her skin, and like why? And and where did the silver smock come from? From the chest. You'd think she could pawn that jewelry to get a less conspicuous coat. Um... You think? <laughs> yeah, but we won't be able to hide her beauty a less conspicuous. Once again, we're trying to inject logic into this yeah. where where it it, yeah. it, it doesn't belong. <laughs> The author then interjects, but some who know the end of this story claim that she dropped the ring on purpose. Ah, she's being a, she's being a crafty serving wench. As for me, quite frankly, I can believe it, because when the prince had stopped at the door and looked through the keyhole, she must have seen him. Must have been a giant keyhole. Yeah, really. With regard to this point, women are so alert that nothing can escape their eyes, and they always know what they have perceived. Indeed, I'm quite... Yeah, and that's how we don't get killed by serial killers. Mm. 
Indeed, I am quite sure and give you my word on it that she was convinced her young lover would gratefully receive her ring. There never was a cake kneaded so daintily as this one, and the prince found it so good that he began ravishing it immediately. Ugh, weird choice of words. <laughs> and almost swallowed the ring. <laughs> However, when he saw the remarkable emerald and the narrow band of gold that formed the shape of Donkey Skin's finger, his heart was ignited by an inexpressible joy. Hmm. At once he put the ring under his pillow, but his malady continued. No matter what one may say about marriage, it is a perfect remedy for lovesickness. <laughs> wow, that can be taken a bunch of ways. I, feel, I, I, I now want to look into like Charles Perrault's marriage situation. Like, it must be very interesting. Yeah, he, he has some feelings <laughs> about women. <laughs> they know everything. <laughs> Don't trust them. <laughs> They're too curious for their own good. Yeah. Um, They're dropping things in my face. So it was decided that the prince should marry, but he deliberated for some time and finally said, I'll be glad to get married provided I marry only the person whose finger fits this ring. Of course. Uh, yes. Because no woman has the same ring. And logic again. Let's not, let's not go down yeah. that path. It's probably a magic ring, okay? <laughs> yeah. A rumor was spread throughout the realm that to claim the prince one had to have a very slender finger. Consequently, every charlatan desirous of gaining high regard pretended that he possessed the secret of making a finger slender. What? <laughs> Following such capricious advice, one woman scraped her finger like a turnip. Oh, another no. cut a little piece off. Still another oh. used some liquid to remove the skin from her finger and reduce oh. its size. Very Cinderella. All sorts of plans imaginable were concocted and put into action by women to make their fingers fit the ring. No matter how delicate their fingers were, they were too large for the ring. Then came the countesses, the baronesses, and all the rest of the nobility. Next came the working girls, who have pretty and slender fingers and are well-proportioned. Sometimes it seemed the ring would fit. However, it was always too small or too round and rebuffed everyone with disdain in like manner. Finally, it was necessary to turn to the servants, the kitchen help, the minor servants, and the poultry keepers. God In short, to all the trash whose red and black hands <gasps> hoped for a happy fate, as much as the delicate hands. This translator, I have some, some issues with. I, the, the uses of the word black so far have not been nice. Yeah, they can be very uncomfortable. great. Yeah. I'm hoping he just means dirty. He, well, I mean. Yeah. I think Let's hope. for people back then, it may be any and all meanings, but yeah. who knows? Everyone thought they had uh, reached the end because Donkey Skin was the only one remaining in the corner of the kitchen. And who could ever believe that the heavens had ordained she might become queen? And why not, said the prince, let her try. Everyone began laughing and exclaimed aloud, do you mean to say that you want that dirty wretch to enter here? But when she drew a little hand as white as ivory and of royal blood from under the dirty skin, how they know it's royal blood? You can just tell. It's blue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when the destined ring was around her finger and fit perfectly, the members of the court were completely astonished. They were so delirious and astonished that they wanted to take her to the king right away. But she requested that she be given some time to change her clothes before she appeared before her lord and master. In truth, the people could hardly keep from laughing because of the clothes she was wearing. But when she arrived at the palace and passed through all the halls in her sumptuous dress, whose beautiful splendor could not be matched, with her blonde hair glistening with diamonds and her, with her blue eyes so large and sweet, filled with a proud majesty, and whose gaze always pleased and never hurt, with her waist so slender and fine that two hands could have embraced it, the ladies of the court showed their feminine politeness and divine courtesy, and all their charms and ornaments dwindled in comparison. Otherwise known as... They shut up and then started gossiping behind their hands. <laughs> mm. 
Preparations for the wedding were begun at once. The monarch invited all the kings from surrounding countries, who all radiant in their different attire left their lands <laughs> to attend the grand event. But neither prince nor king could ap appeared in such splendor as the bride's father, uh, who had been in love with her at one time and had purified the fires that ignited his spirit in the past. Uh, he had expurgated all his criminal desires and the odious flame. The little geez. was left in his soul had been transformed into devoted paternal love. Bear. When he saw her, he said, May heaven be blessed for allowing me to see you again, my dear child. Weeping with joy, he embraced her tenderly. Everyone wanted to share in his happiness, and the future husband was delighted to learn that he was be to become the son-in-law of such a powerful king. <laughs> so he just rocks up after all this time, and he's like, the devil made me do it. <laughs> so, and I, I don't actually love you anymore except for in a family way oh my god temporary insanity at that moment the godmother arrived and told the entire story of how everything had happened and culminated in donkey skin's glory and is that it there are some moralizing bits at the end and our little uh our little poem at the end here mm. The tale of donkey skin is difficult to believe, but so long as there are children on this earth and mothers and grandmothers continue to give birth, <laughs> this tale will be one to reconceive. Look, the, I agree with the first line, <laughs> that it's difficult to yeah. believe. <laughs> but after that, I disagree. <laughs> yeah, not great. Wow. Yeah. I don't understand yeah. why she had to go through the whole song and dance of like pretending to be poor. I, like, I guess pretend to be poor to like escape your father's castle. Sure. Yeah. But then once you rock up to this prince's castle, just like lead with the gold dress, lead with the silver dress, get married to him. Perhaps the theory is that she's afraid of being found. I mean, according to the, the Grim Reading episode, this story is seen um, by some critics as very inspirational for people who are survivors of uh, abuse. Mm. You, you want to hide, but you also feel the need to, to reinvent and reclaim yourself at the same time. It's a process to open yourself up to a new person, I suppose. Yeah. But that's completely undercut by the fact that the dad just comes in at the end like nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so so there, are, there are a bunch of different versions of this, this story. Um, you know, this is, this, in this version, they claim that it's madness, that he goes insane sort of yeah. temporarily, and that's why he mm. tries to go after his daughter. Mm. There are other ones where it's not explained at all. There mm. are some where it's uh, counselors putting, pushing him into it. Mm. Um, the version I read as a child left this part completely out of it and instead she was running away from uh, being betrothed to an ogre by her father um, uh, yeah there's also yeah. an incredibly disturbing uh, novelization of it by Newbery Award winner Robin McKinley mm -hmm. called Deerskin which uh, left me with nightmares for a oh. good long while it's a good read though but it's just it's dark <laughs> also that if if the kings of France had a donkey that gold, yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, all their problems would be solved. And I I don't think they. Uh, I don't know. Somehow I think Louis the Seventh could like give that away to the English, you know. Yeah. But uh, apart from definitely that, higher <laughs> ranking than any daughter, though. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. I was like, you're going through all of this and like ruining your ki your kingdom's apparently sole source of income. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. Anyway. That was a great yeah. story. And the, yeah, definitely shades of Cinderella in there, especially when especially obviously with you know the scullery maid ring. becoming the princess, but also yeah. with the the ring. Yeah. It's very glossy. Yeah. They they sh they're split between um Arn Thompson Uther classification system. Um they're split between 510A and 510B and they're both traced back to ancient China 
in what's considered the first version of Cinderella. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's a good transition <laughs> to the Far East. Um, yes. Where maybe we'll find connections with, you know. Oh, see, I wasn't the only one who brought a book. Oh, Eliza's got a book. Oh, it's called Haunted Japan. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's called Haunted Japan. Exploring the world of Japanese yokai, ghosts, and the paranormal. Oh, I love yokai. Okay, let's get into it. And I wonder, but I wonder if we'll see any connections to, because I I don't know about either of you, but I definitely grew up with like solely European fairy tales. Um, So it'd be interesting to see. Mostly. I mean, I had some exposure to some Native American folklore oh actually yeah we we, we did we got indigenous stories growing up yeah that's true yeah like the rainbow serpent uh eurasian and and russian folklore as well yeah i grew up with um, russian yeah yeah i had this wonderful book called folk tales of the armor which is which just definitely sort of you know siberia steppe people type thing yeah my my parents were just like have some hans christian anderson and we'll leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> I grew up reading like this storybook and had all these beautiful like you know illustrations but it um it showed like the dark versions like you know mm. so I was like six reading about like Cinderella of her like stepsisters like cutting off their feet mm. and getting their eyes picked out by birds yeah. at the wedding all of the yeah. all of the bluebeard uh illustrations that i saw were very um some of them were very disturbing he's 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 this very weird like elongated figure in a lot of them and he he often has like a turban he's kind of this weird like oriental kind of figure which was a bit weird i was like why yeah and he's got to gotta bring in the casual racism yeah i was like he's yeah i don't know maybe this is a reference i always like like... the firebird story Mm. growing up that was like my favorite I, I liked uh, Vasilis of the Wise. Oh, Vasilis mm-hmm. is great. And Fenis the Falcon. I love the Baba Yaga. The Baba Yaga's. Yes. Uh, I just love saying the word. Baba Yaga. Yeah. Well, if you Fun like one. dark fairy tales, I recommend Angela Carter. Angela Carter. She was uh, writing uh, retellings of them in like 70s and 80s, I think. And they're very disturbing mm. a lot of the time. <laughs> I- I'm currently reading. Um... <sighs> One of the many books I'm currently reading is um, Witches Abroad by um, Terry Pratchett. It's one of the Discworld Excellent. books. And it's a good yeah, one. It's in, the, it's in the Witches series. And it's basically like one of them becomes a fairy godmother, one of the witches. And um, oh. shenanigans ensue. <laughs> you read that while currently I'm reading about Japanese serial killers. Okay, let's get to, let's get to Eliza's tale. Yes. So it's called Princess Hashi. And there's quite a few like versions of it because it was a folktale. So originally, like, you know, it was just passed down through, you know, oral. So there's like different versions, but this is the one I'm going with. It's by Katrin Ross. of this man potentially he was an official 
and he one day either cheated on his wife or he got himself a concubine. And although she pleaded many times for her husband to give up the woman, he ignored her pleas. So she decided, as she was driven by madness, to exact revenge. So she went to this nearby shrine and she prayed there for seven days, wanting, like, oh, how do I, you know, get revenge on my husband? I want to turn into a demon, as you do. <laughs> so then she's there, and after seven days, one of the local um, people working in the shrine comes up to her and goes, oh, I had a dream, like, from God, from a God, saying, um, I know how you can become a demon. <laughs> so aspirational yeah after the two stories that we've had i'm like good on her let let her become a yeah. demon <laughs> yeah yeah and so i just find it interesting how the god sent the instructions to a priest not to her directly hmm. but anyway so she was told all these steps of how to become a demon first she had to don a red kimono and then she had to paint her hair red and then she had to get a three-pronged fire-lit crown. I know. It's really cool. I want one. I know, same here. So then she had to go and sit by this river. The I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but Ujigawa River for 21 days sitting in the river. And after 21 days, she became a living demon. So, in the meantime, her husband had had this series of horrible nightmares and so he decided to, like, go to somebody. So he went to an astrologer, the court astrologer, and they warned him that he could lose his life as a result of a woman's revenge. So the man confessed that his wife had been madly jealous by him keeping concubine. So the astrologer gave him this special, like, amulet protection. And so when the living demon, his former wife, broke into his room one night to kill him, she was unable to because of the protection charm he had. So unable to take her revenge as she wished, she stalked the streets of Kyoto each night mm -hmm. where she would, upon meeting a man, she would appear as a beautiful woman or upon meeting a woman, appear as a handsome man. Ooh. She would then seduce them and kill them. So eventually as the murders can, like, rose in number, the emperor thought we have to do something about this. So he ordered one of his heavenly kings, so like one of his high officials, Minamoto non Riko, probably mispronounced that anyway, to find her and destroy her. So Minamoto went and after a long chase, managed to corner her one night. Surrendering, the living demon vowed to cease her evil actions, but as long as she was given a grand funeral. And so the emperor agreed to her request. So she jumped back into the river and drowned. As promised, oh. the emperor had a grand funeral. But then after a while... The demon appeared in the dreams to the emperor and requested that a shrine be built in her honour by the river. And so the emperor complied and erected the shrine. He also renamed the woman Princess Hashi of the Yujigawa. The end. Nice little easy one. Wow. So it's a Japanese succubus. 
Yeah, I guess it is. A, a gender-bending succubus. Um, mm-hmm. Very interesting. And is there, is this like an actual shrine that exists? Yes, you can actually go see there was it. Some, there were some real names and places in there. <laughs> I, I think oh, you're yeah, going to so... need to share some photos to the Instagram. Yeah, we'll, do, we'll, we'll definitely Yeah, yeah, I'll find some photos. But there's lots of like, depictions of it. Like it's even mentioned in the tales of um, Genji, you know, the really famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like it's just used as a, cha- a char- uh, chapter heading. And so basically like, there's a few different like kind of versions of this. But it all has the same line of her turning into a demon and then exacting her revenge. In some of it, she does kill her husband and all his, like, family and relatives. In some of it, she tried to kill the concubine or second wife, but it didn't work because of the protection. Mm. But it all follows the same thing. She got, yeah. It was like, don't cheat on your wife. Don't get a concubine and your wife won't turn into a demon. And then throw herself in a river after killing many, many people. Yeah. And then get a shrine name. And then get worshipped after that. And get to call a princess. Hmm. (laughs) That may be a mixed message. (laughs) Yeah. Kills people and you become a princess. It's interesting the way that sort of ancient people saw like gods and spirits as as like, you know, you worship them to sort of placate them so that they, they, they don't destroy you mm. <laughs> like that's I, oh, I guess i guess that's kind of an an, an old testament kind of way of, of seeing god as well i just like how she was able to go to a shrine and pray and then the god's like yeah i'll tell you how to become a demon mm. <laughs> god that god was really chill <laughs> i know i was like that god's like i'm i bet you that god was a woman who's going oh i feel you you gotta get revenge on that awful husband it was very zero to a hundred like step one become a demon <laughs> step two if you fail to kill your husband just kill a lot of other people who are innocent yeah Yeah. Mm. step three get a shrine dedicated to you and become a princess Mm. yeah makes sense yeah Yeah. i really want a three-pronged fire lit crown now yeah i was there and like all painted in red i want to see some cosplay go on etsy i'm sure you could find something yeah but can it be fire lit (laughs) <laughs> yeah probably for like hundreds of dollars that I don't have get thee to a craft store then <laughs> shall I tell my, my yes, anecdote yes, it does involve do. France please do please do it does involve France so it is okay. it is relevant yeah even though I do try and work this stuff in whenever I can because I I love this subject yeah so academically speaking my interests very much are focused on the history of books as objects um, which includes things like you know the history of printing and you know, cultural changes as a result of all that. So this is a this is a story that I learned um, in a previous job, and I love to in, I love to tell it, even though there is absolutely no historical evidence that this actually ever happened. So p- movable type printing in Western Europe, it, everybody knows pretty much, is developed by Johannes Gutenberg in Mainz in the 1450s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what fewer people might remember is that he didn't do this by himself. He had an assistant named Peter Schoffer, and he had an investor named Johannes Fust. So, and this does get to France eventually, I promise. <laughs> so, <laughs> we know very little about Gutenberg himself. Uh, most of mm-hmm. what we know comes from court cases, because like many inventors, he is a brilliant inventor, but a terrible businessman. Mm. <laughs> and eventually he got, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and eventually he got sued by Johannes Fust for repayment of the invest the investment, mm. basically. I mean, it's it's, yeah. sim- it's a simplification of what was going on, but that's basically the gist of it. Gutenberg, as the result of all these things, plus his assist- plus uh, Peter Schoffer, his, his assistant, um, he he loses faith in the process, and he decides to start his own shop. But of course, he knows how the press is built. He knows how it works, and so basically, mm. this is how printing starts to spread outside of Gutenberg's control. Mm-hmm. So the story is that Fust starts showing off pr- the printing press and printed pages at market fairs, slowly moving west across Germany and into France, and that he eventually ends up in Paris at the court of, okay, Ben, who who was king in the 1450s? Would that be Louis the Twelfth? Um, it would be Louis the Eleventh, 1450. Louis the Eleventh. Yeah. Okay, so the universal you know, spider to, to that court. We'll get to yeah. him. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's fun. Yeah. Uh, so Fust shows up in Paris. He starts printing copies of the Bible, um, mm-hmm. and of course, people have never seen you know movable type printed books before. They did have printing. This is this is not a new technology totally, yeah. but mm-hmm. to have an entire book that's printed is new. And yeah. so he's producing Bibles so much faster than everybody else can. Mm. It's very very regular. Mm. You know the the type um, much more than you can with a hand, and you know some mm. of the letters are done in red and maybe that's blood anyway the story is he gets brought up on charges of witchcraft cool and that's that's before the heretics get get a hold of it <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> it, you know i i like to compare it to today with with animation and the whole uncanny valley thing it's just if something is too perfect our minds think freak out this is wrong mm, yeah and so people had some people had that reaction to early print wow interesting well yeah. again there's no story there's no back basis for this but some scholars have pointed to this story, which has existed for quite some time, as one of the many sources of uh, Goethe's Dr. Faust, who sold his soul for knowledge. Mm. Anyway, I, I just I like that story. It's good for this time oh, of year. Very cool. I like that reference to blood. Mm. He does. Where we are in French history, that just seems like such a such a typical reaction of like it's the devil, <laughs> burn it! Like we're in the middle of the. Um, the, the the Cathar Wars and everything, yeah. I love saying the word heretics. It, it does sort of always feel like you're coming back to that Monty Python witch burning scene oh, from Holy Grail. Yes. Oh, I <laughs> Where love the logic Monty is Python. therefore witch. Yeah, burn her. <laughs> yeah. Nobody expects She's this. A witch. Kind of Although I guess it, where we are in history, it's nobody expects the the Dominican order. Um. Yeah. <laughs> oh, poor Cathars. Mm, yeah. <laughs> We'll, we'll, they weren't hurting anybody. We'll get really in depth into it. God, now I want to watch Monty Python. Yeah, I, I put up a poll on the Me Patreon too. and on Twitter, saying uh, giving some options of, of potential bonus episodes. And the one that received the most votes in both of them was talking about Carcassonne and the the sort of Cathar castles and um, what was going on down there. Because we don't have much time to get into it in like the regular episodes. Um, See, I'd go for the destruction of the Templars. Oh, that's coming later. That's gonna we're gonna get really into that. But um And also the the almost farcical like expulsion readmittance, expulsion readmittance of the Jewish community in France. Yes. Like what? Like five times over the course of hundred and fifty years? Yeah, it's it, it's 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 a lot. <laughs> but I'm thinking of I'm thinking of dedicating an episode on, on that as well. Um yeah. could do like a Hanukkah. I advocate episode. for the architecture episode. Because I love a good castle architecture. Yes. Honestly, if you want to talk about the Jews in France, you'd be better off sticking it around Passover. I mean, Hanukkah is such a minor holiday. Mm. 
it's mm. it's really not it's it's mostly a children's holiday right so it's, it's, it's not i appreciate the consideration it's not the vibe <laughs> no it's about a rebellion well, yeah. I, mean, I mean, you celebrate by eating oily foods, specifically things cooked in oil, so a lot of deep fried stuff, yum, yum, yum. and also cheese. Mmm, cheese. I mean, I think it'll be great whenever you have it. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it'll be interesting no matter when. Yeah. And I appreciate the inclusion. I mean, it's, uh, I, like, I, I've done sort of, I've done sort of Hebrew studies before at yeah, uni, very, very surface level, not, not. Getting... It's all real cheerful, isn't it? It's all real cheerful, but <laughs> but it's so much more than just the king saying they're bad, which which yeah. is pretty much as much as we get in our regular episode. So I, I would like to go more in depth into that at some point. Mm. I mean, my cynical take is usually it's they're bad and I want their money. Yes, mm. it, 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 yeah. I mean um, <laughs> Eliza mentioned this in in um, in Philip the Second Part Two, which is coming out. Uh, I did shortly after we, we record this, but. Um, you, you asked, you posed the question, uh, does he really believe the Jews are evil or is he just after their money? And I said, both. <laughs> yeah. That's the answer the general... is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, I thought you remember more about what I said than I remember what I said. <laughs> so that was a great tangent. Yeah. Oh, we, we, we've got a lot of interesting, uh, episode ideas Options. flying around. Yeah. So definitely. Um, listener if you want to get in touch and tell us i also really want to do it it lost both the polls but i really want to do a a gothic art episode um i mean you can overrule you are the uh the the, you are the master of the the angry mob that is true (laughs) no i just want to do like architecture but i really want to include japanese architecture because i love the castle defenses I love myself yeah. a murder hole. I mean, you could do a compare and contrast, we you know, could. Eastern and Western castles. Yeah, we can talk about Carcassonne. We can do that. Because so far I've been to three of the 12 original castles in Japan and two of them that I've seen so far have the murder holes, which mm. I love. I advocate that we bring back murder holes into architecture. Yes. We, yeah, we, It's we, very <laughs> tempting sometimes, but, you know, I work at a university and I think that would just be a little bit too tempting. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't drop, like, you know, rocks and boiling oil. you just drop, like, you know, like glitter and stuff. Glitter's worse. Glitter's I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the boiling oil of the modern day. Yeah. My brother calls it preschool herpes. <laughs> <laughs> I've 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 lived I've lived with um se- several gay men in the past who have allowed glitter to get all over things in, in, oh, in the laundry no. in the bathroom, and I've just been raging about it. <laughs> no, I'll never forget when I worked at a bookstore and somebody who walked past the bookstore, I don't know what they were doing like a giant thing of glitter, but they dropped like a basically like a bomb of glitter right outside the front of the store, and we tried to like sweep it up, but obviously you know glitter you can't get everything up. Yeah. So for like months afterwards, people were still treading in glitter into the store. Yep. <laughs> maybe, I'd find maybe, it and I'd yep. be like, it's been six months. Maybe that's how Bluebeard ended up with his blue beard. He got glitter bombed with blue glitter um, and then he couldn't get out of his beard for the rest of his life. A sparkly blue beard. We don't want him to, he doesn't deserve sparkle. I want a gothic novel about that. <laughs> that, that, that. You have to write it then. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually written so I've written a, 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 a short story that I guess is a fairy tale. It's like an adaptation of a fairy tale, um, which I may eventually have. Share, I read that one? one day. No, you haven't actually. And I maybe <laughs> yeah. I've sent there's it to a you. lot of ones that Ben sends me, like half written like things. And I'm like, oh, this is really good. You should keep writing it. And then he never does. And I'm like, never do. damn it, that was the beginning of a great novel. 
Um, but I should, I could send it to you. It, it's finished. So I could send it to you. But oh, it's, it's a finished one. Oh, that's new for me. Yeah. It's, it's based on the, uh, a, a story called The Knights of the Fish um, by uh, Fernand Caballero, who's a, actually a, a female pseudonymed uh, fairy tale collector from Spain. Um, cool. But I saw. Does of, it have anything to do with Rex Factor's Fishy Angel? No, it does not, but I wish it did. Aww. And I wish it did. And maybe I'm, maybe I should include that. But um, I sort of expanded it a little bit and I sort of also um, queerified it. Um, so <laughs> it's a. Uh, Excellent. It's, it's now better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you for joining us, Elspeth, on yes. this lovely oh, episode. entirely my pleasure. Lovely Thank you so much episode. for inviting me. This was fun. Um, as the rogue American accent and the uh, the trio here. Yeah, and yeah, and we, well, we'd love to have you on again at any point. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, Just let me if, know if we think of a good topic that that we could we could sub you in on. Um, I know very little about France, but I, I do know a bit about England. Don't worry, I also <laughs> know very little about France, but it did not stop me from starting this podcast. <laughs> um, I guess I know very little about modern France, which. Um, gets yeah. me caught out sometimes <laughs> it's more the history that I'm interested when people in. say modern what do you define what period do you define modern as like from the 19th or 20th century what do you got um in history classes when i was in grad school modern was defined as after the french revolution french revolution yeah. onwards whereas early early modern was sort of printing press to french revolution the moment the guillotine first dropped that's when the modern period started yeah, so, yes, thanks, Elspeth. And that is going to be yes. au revoir from me. Goodbye from me. Bye.